It's Monday, August 1st, and Scott and I are currently sitting with, let's just call it 5,000 bottles of whiskey. Welcome to Eat It, Virginia. Hello and welcome to Eat It, Virginia, your number one podcast source for food news and interviews with the people who make Richmond restaurants great. Follow us on social media at Eat It Virginia and be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. My name is Scott Wise and I am joined as always by my friend, my friend, Roby Martin. Roby, we're in a childhood wonderland for me. We're at Regency Square right now. <laughs> is, that, is Regency the mall I the childhood I think my wonderland? first date might have been here. I got my ear pierced here. This is like a... Like my senior prom tuxedo I, I purchased here. You can definitely see one of Virginia's largest collections of whiskeys and bourbons. Well, whiskeys are bourbons. Bourbons and whiskeys. You learned about this. Right? You didn't you didn't retain anything from Mac? I've stapled some too, which is why I'm stumbling through <laughs> is this that intro. What it is? <laughs> Perfect. Yes. Probably the largest collection in the state of Virginia, maybe even the East Coast here at Regency. It's made it smaller. Wait, where are we? Specifically, where are we? We haven't said that yet. You don't want to tell them? I think you should tell them. Well, the reason why we're here is because you were here earlier this week having drinks, and you decided that Mac would be a great guest. Mac McCormick, we're at the Big Whiskey, which affectionately I call the Big Whisker, um, at Regency Square, the new big whisker. We'll get to Mac and the bourbon in a second. What are some other big food headlines? How about pit beef? How about it? I don't know anything about pit beef. Originated in Baltimore, has now made itself to Richmond. Randy O'Dell, which you might know from Bovine, thanks Mac for that, um, has started a restaurant with a buddy of his, also thanks Mac for telling me where it is because I have no directional sense, on Main Street in the old, God, I swear Mac's been around town forever because he like brought up restaurants I don't even know, but just know the Get Tight Lounge is on Main Street. Looks pretty pretty cool, pretty hip. I'm looking super forward to checking it out. Hip, Do you know, like, so you said pit beef is from baltimore yes originated in baltimore is it barbecue is it steakums what is it no neither of those things it is it's if arby's the roast beef sandwich which obviously randy dell's gonna come at me with a pitchfork that i'm like comparing it to this it's if arby's i don't know got elevated to a level that makes arby's taste good which could be any other level than arby's is but get tight we're not tolerate this arby's slander are you kidding they have coated fries. You should tolerate it at all times. Next issue. Uh, we have Hot Tomato Summer going on. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I think I'm a little <laughs> familiar. <laughs> Why would you be familiar? I ate so, much, oh, I ate so many tomatoes last, last summer. It was an amazing experience for me. So I did it this summer, Hot Tomato Summer, and I have eaten a lot of tomatoes. I'm going to suggest everyone, every single solitary person, stop listening to this podcast and go to immediately to Garnet's for a sandwich. They had the they they're the big winner of, of hot tomato summer in your mind. In my humble opinion, yes. Humble, huh? <laughs> there you go. Whoa! <laughs> there it is. Max clearly been pouring more than one drink for us today. <laughs> in my humble opinion, you should definitely go to Garnet's. Um, they have a date night. Obviously, you can go get two sandwiches, an appetizer, a bottle of wine for thirty three dollars. You should take advantage of it immediately. Love it. We have some ice cream news. Oh yeah, I don't know if it's. It's like bittersweet. Like you can still go to Forest Hill for Charm School and you might or might not be able to go to Scott's Edition for the movement of Charm School. They were a little vague in there in that plan. So they're closing. Charm School is closing its location on Broad Street, downtown Richmond. Right. Moving to Scott's Edition where I think they're going to make and store ice cream to sell in, in retail stores. And they might have a window to go and, and buy ice cream there to you know eat on site. Well, I ho- I'm hoping that wherever they go, there is still on-site, and I'm stoked for off-site ice cream. And they're still going to have the place on Forest Hill Avenue next to the Veil. Next to the Veil, yep. You can and beer and ice cream is always a pairing stuff. that you should do. You know it's not a great pairing? What is that? What did you learn? Bourbon and ice is not a great pairing. You're, and, and I feel like you learned that from our guest today, Mac McCormick, and we are at the Big Whiskey, or the Big Whisker, which he's going to punch me now. And I'm trying to think of a number. Have you ever done that? How many we have here? Yeah, so 20, like... 2,200 no, 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 no. I'm not done. Oh. Have you ever had like a She'll say that a lot, by yeah, the way. I will. Yeah, I will. It's great. On how many bottles are in either one 
three, three places that you own, because you own three. We're with Mac McCormick. He owns several places, one downtown, one in the West End, one in the fan, and all of them, well, all but one, are whiskey-focused without the E. Actually, the pub does a heavy whiskey focus. That's where this all started. Um, I've owned that place since I was 24 years old. And so you opened it when you were two. <laughs> I was 24. <laughs> but I was... Uh, I wasn't planning on staying in the business. I was just a very popular bartender, and I knew that me standing behind the bar could pay the bills of a bar, and I wouldn't have to work for anybody because my boss kept scheduling me on days I had classes and didn't care about my school schedule. And I literally told him, this isn't my future. I don't plan on working in restaurants for the rest of my life. <laughs> and, uh, Good job, Mac. I actually was... Again, again. So he's a fortune teller. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I, I was in an honors chemistry program with the intention of going to med school. And I got into med school after the restaurant was open. Um, but I really like working for myself, um, partly because I can fire the bad customer. And that's the problem with the restaurant business. And that was my biggest problem was just the sometimes you run across a person who's so rude to you, no matter how nice you are to them, that it kind of kills your desire to work in this business. And uh, once I realized I could just um, use some very flagrant language and tell that person exactly what I thought about them. I was like, that changes things a little for me. And uh, so six or seven years in, I started getting into whiskey because I had quit drinking completely. Most of the people that worked for me uh, were older than me, and I didn't want them to see me as anything but their boss, which that's not how I saw my old bosses when I started bartending. They were definitely the people that own bars to party, not to be serious about their work. So when I started drinking, and I figured I would create a rule. Seven years later, I have a, I still follow this rule, no more than two drinks a day and no more than two, or two days a week, unless I'm doing like a private tasting, which I've done with you before. And then I definitely make sure I have a DD or... He pointed at me, by the way, when he well, said you, private tasting, not you, Scott. I just want to go down this road Because you and I have done a couple we've, of these yes, we've, together. We've, we've, so, so we've known each other for a very, very long time. I knew Rubby when she was drinking flavored vodka. He absolutely <laughs> did. He is not joking. Talk about 24. Also shotgun beers in his um, downtown yes. restaurant more than once. Which is an ABC violation, so that was just a figment of her imagination. <laughs> and, and you know what? He also did not give out beers to anyone when the bar at midnight. That was not a thing that I'd happened either. I'd come back either. in a little bit if you guys want to. <laughs> if we would just want to reminisce. Yeah, with here. the good music in the upstairs. Where were you when you were a young bartender? Where did, where did you first catch So I've bike? always worked in uh, downtown. I, so I always had more than one job. Uh, I, I was cooking during the daytime and I cooked at La Mer and I cooked at Azuro and a couple of other fine dining restaurants. And then I was bartending. And when I first started bartending, I was actually under 21 and I was bartending at a gay club in DC called Trax. And that uh, was an amazing place. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm trying to be very supportive of that community. And it's because working there in the eighties made me hyper aware of uh, how marginalized the community was. And, I mean, I was there at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic and like the, just seeing how these really nice people were treated so badly by our government and by society just made me really sad. So that's why I kind of do a lot of things to help sure. uh, be an ally in that community. But uh, then I came to Richmond uh, and I started waiting tables because I wasn't allowed to bartend here yet. I wasn't old enough. And uh, I worked at several fine dining places, and then I, uh, when I turned uh, 19, I was working at a bar called Castle Thunder Cafe in Shaco Bottom, and uh, I was a bouncer. It was the first time I ever got knocked out in my life. That was fun. Um, and, uh, did you deserve it? That's the question. I did not. I was breaking up a fight. Uh, it was uh, definitely... I, actually, I just stepped off a curb. It wasn't somebody hitting me that did it. It was just me being dumb. But... Uh, so, time I got knocked out, too. Pure clumsiness. The... Uh, um, the guy that actually taught me how to bartend was Coulter Turpin, who was one of the original owners of Bottoms Up. And I, you know, to this day, like still kind of remember some of the characteristics that Coulter would have behind the bar. He was just such a, a fun, awesome person. And he made a point to make sure that the people that were at his bar felt like they were very special. And I tried to do the same thing. Uh, he taught me a lot about how to treat a customer and then the guy that taught me how to wait tables was uh, Manny from Cuba Cuba. Uh, he, I was his busboy at the tobacco company when I worked there. Oh, wow. And uh, um, I, I love both of those guys. Coulter's not with us anymore. 
but uh, I just, you know, I love him and his whole family. They're just phenomenal. And, and I still, when I see Manny, I just get excited and just a good dude. give him a big hug. You know, I see him at the restaurant depot all the time. And I just, he's just such a great guy. I've been his entire family, you know, like, because when he, I think he'd only been here a few years at that point because their family actually came over from Cuba and to meet his parents and grandparents. It was amazing. You know, what a, what a, what an awesome thing. Cool, cool family. If, if you're not familiar, Cuba, Cuba, out here near the Big Whiskey, which I call the Big Whisker affectionately, which I, when I texted him, I'm like, we're going to meet you at the Big Whisker. There's a Cuba, Cuba out here and then a Cuba, Cuba in the fan near your Little Whisker. Yes. Big Whisker and Little Whisker. Yes, yes. So all together, let's shock some people. How many bottles of whiskey do you own? Do you want, like, including back stock as well as the stuff that's on the shelves? I want everything that's not your personal collection. I would guess in the fifteen to $18,000 or 18,000 bottles right now. Uh, between the three restaurants. Do you think that you're the largest owner of whiskey, whiskey with an E, bourbon in the state of Virginia? I actually think I'm kind of average sized. Really? <laughs> um, oh man, I totally got, missed that you. joke. Yeah, now I'm embarrassed. I, 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 I probably have more inventory. I don't know uh, that anybody has more of a selection than we do at Big Whiskey. I don't see how they could because it took me 10 years to put this collection together. Uh, Virginia has some restrictions where we have to buy everything from the ABC. And so one of the reasons we have so many bottles in backstock is because of that. So when things become available, I buy as many as I can just to make sure that we keep them in stock because I have to not think about today or tomorrow. I have to think about five years from now. And some of the products that we carry, uh, the only reason we have them is because I stocked them 15 years ago, 10 years ago, having no idea that they would become so popular, but they were Christmas time only releases. And I just wanted to make sure we could have them outside of Christmas time. So a lot of the ones that people seek out, like the Van Winkles, when I opened the fan restaurant, I had hundreds of bottles of that in stock already before we opened because it was only available at Christmas time. And we're still living off of that inventory. We just keep raising the prices based on the dollar value of the bottle. I would never encourage anybody to pay market prices for the bottle unless it's a transactional drink. And that happens a lot in my restaurants, like where people, you know, they're trying to sign you to a new media deal for an internationally syndicated show. And they know that buying you a multi-hundred dollar pour of Van Winkle will get you to sign the deal. So I'm not going to say anything when they're doing that because I don't want to hinder you getting that job. Um, but uh, You should tell Julian. He's a fraternity <laughs> brother of my dad's. Wouldn't he love that? I think you would like that a lot. I know. He'd be like, oh, it's my bourbon that they're trying to get them to sign all the things. It's it, so funny. It actually is. And, and I kind of think of my job as a bartender here uh, to show people the ones that they don't have to pay that money for. And I, if people are doing that, I usually, if it's not the corporate guys in suits and it's not their money, I say, well, why don't we take a third of that shot price and I'll show you four whiskeys that cost a third of that that I think are almost as good or equally as good and you don't have to waste a bunch of money. Uh, I, I understand the value of the bottles that I have, but I, I actually downsell people all the time from those kind of crazy expensive pours because we're a restaurant and I want you to come here once every two weeks, once every three weeks for dinner. I don't want you to just think of us as the expensive place. And so you, you mentioned that you're a restaurant and that's a good point. Now you walk in here and you are overwhelmed with Elvis Presley, Clint Eastwood, and hundreds, thousands, thousands bottles of, of whiskey. And I know Virginia has also has some strange laws, or maybe not strange, but unique laws that make you sell alcohol versus food. There's percentages involved. Yeah. Is that, is that still the issue here in Virginia? And how do you combat that when you're selling a $200 potential pour? Of it's, it still whiskey? is the issue. And I uh, have any... What is the law? I'm sorry. What is the actual law? Now? So if the, the way it works is the breakdown is if I sell $55 worth of liquor... I'm on the hook for $45 worth of food. And uh, so it's, if it's, you take the $100 in sales, 55 of it uh, can be liquor. The other 45 needs to be food. What's kind of crazy about that is uh, beer and wine don't count when you have a mixed beverage license. Uh, I'm not trying to change the law to make beer and wine required because our favorite dive bars like Bamboo Cafe and 
sidewalk would probably go out of business because they wouldn't be able to make their sales because everybody in my pub downtown, everybody drinks beer. So I don't have to sell that much food to keep my license at my pub. Um, and this location in the West End, we have a huge banquet room and we do tons of banquets. And so we never have a food ratio problem here. But when I built the fan restaurant, I, I was building a concept that didn't exist anywhere in the United States at that point. And I didn't know that. I just, I looked for places that did that because I kept buying bottles to bring into my pub that did not belong there just so I could try them because I was curious about them. We had like 30-year Macallan at the pub where everybody was drinking $2 PBRs and it made no sense, but I just was curious about it, so I bought it. And so when I um, built the Whiskey Grill, I wanted a really tiny space. And uh, but I also wanted to go back to food because that was my background. And I w was pretty ambitious with the menu when we first opened. And I actually changed it because I realized I was kind of underselling or overselling, I guess. We had wild game meats and just, it was upper echelon food, five-star type dining. And I realized that that wasn't really conducive to being in the fan. Like that's not how people viewed the fan. And I think that's why Ed Viseo was so... Uh, popular at Mama Zoo's. It really wasn't that uh, nice of a place, particularly. It felt very uh, homey. Uh, the service was kind of lackluster sometimes, but the food was amazing and it wasn't expensive. And so I realized watching him and learning from people like that, that I needed to step back. I wasn't trying to, I had to stop trying to show off with my menu. And so we switched it to more barbecue, but also heavy vegetarian menu as well, just because I feel like that's like a very underserved community. And uh, so our, our food is more like a normal barbecue restaurant pricing now. And uh, it, it's, it's much busier, higher volume of sales. But the problem with the fan is the whole restaurant only holds 30 people. And so if all 30 people are in there eating our most, our most expensive entree is a hand-cut 12-ounce ribeye. It's $30 with sides. And so if there's 30 people all eating that, that's $900. And if those same 30 people all get, say, the fried artichoke appetizer, that's $10 appetizer. So that's another 300 So we're at $1,200 uh, in food sales with our restaurant at, at capacity and everybody eating more food than they probably should. Uh, if you and Roby and I were celebrating Roby getting that multi-million dollar international I cannot wait for job. that day. God, it's going to be amazing because we're going to have national. like all the steaks and the fried artichokes. Yes. And America. Apparently, I can only have five drinks. Yes. Well, Each I, of us can have one drink. Well, I can only have two. Actually, can only twice have two. a week. So. No, that's it. We're done. Five total drinks. <laughs> well, here's the problem. That's the only thing he can sell to cover his food ratio. Actually, we can't even do that. If I, oh, gosh, I went over. I, I'm, I'm going to use an example of something that ABC sells at retail price. It's $2,500. It's the McAllen 25. We saw a lot of that. People, it's a, it's a celebration kind of drink. That bottle cost the restaurant $2,500. By normal markup rules, we should charge $650 a pour for it. Uh, we don't. How many ounces? Uh, ounce and a half. Ounce and a half. We get 17 drinks out of the bottle. So we only charge $500 for it which sounds like a deal, but uh, uh, I'm just kidding. I mean, it's a, totally. <laughs> but if the three of us each have one pour of that, the, and the entire restaurant is full, and we've sold them all that other food, we've already missed our ratio because of three drinks. And we each only had one drink, and the, nobody it's else so in the restaurant. The yes, and ratios that's, are screwed up. And it was funny because, I, you know, I think of my pub as a bar, um, and I think of the Whiskey Grill as a restaurant. They are very different. I mean, uh, the pub, we're just doing you know, fried wings and tenders and bar food and that you want when you're getting hammered at 12 o'clock at night. Restaurant people, I built that pub to be like a haven for restaurant workers. We always have food till 2 a.m. And I, I just, to me as a bartender, trying not to be a lifelong restaurant owner at that point, I was building the bar that made me the most tips as a bartender. And like restaurant employees are the best customers, but they want to eat. And so we always have food. And that restaurant actually way oversells its food. It's uh, never had a problem because it's mostly beer. People drink pints of Guinness all day long and cans of PBR. And I opened the, my actual restaurant where I had a full kitchen staff with multiple people on the line, not just a door guy who's flipping a burger. And uh, I was amazed that we were getting food violations. And I actually sued Virginia over it. And tr I've been trying. It actually went all the way to the state Supreme Court. And the state asked us to drop the case 
because they were I think they were worried that we might win. And if I win, then it could kick open the doors for bars to exist in the state of Virginia without selling food. And I'm not trying to completely change the state of Virginia. I do think that one day we should be allowed to have those. Uh, I don't think they should have the same license as a restaurant does. But uh, I've been working in General Assembly to change all of that for a while now. And Is the history behind that just like religious Southern history? I think so. History? I mean, it, the, the federal government made it on the states to choose how they ran their alcohol after prohibition. And I want to say it wasn't until 1972 or so that you could have a liquor by the drink in the state of Virginia. And even as late as their early 80s, uh, have you ever been to the tobacco company? Sure. Yeah. All right. So actually, I'm opposing we that guy. there anymore. Well, I don't either because that guy is the one that's trying to oppose my regulation change that I'm trying to make. But you know how they have like a kind of inappropriately dressed women who bring drinks to the tables and uh, never noticed. Yes. And then a dress code for people to get in, but yes. we'll keep going down. The, we'll keep going down the opposition to, you know how I feel about the tobacco company. I, I worked, I worked there and we didn't let Molly crew in because of how they dressed when I was working there is kind of funny. But, uh, um, anyway, the, uh, the way that they do it where they, the cocktail waitresses always bring the drinks to the table. The waiter doesn't do it. It's always a, a woman dressed like that. That was because back in the very origination of the liquor by the drink laws in Virginia, an ABC manager was the only one that was allowed to carry a drink across the floor in the restaurant. And so uh, Dr. Cable, the owner of the tobacco company, was one of the people that helped write the, these regulations. And, uh, and it's funny because he really is working very diligently against the change. And I can't, couldn't figure out why until I opened this location and I realized that it's so much easier when you have a big space to make your food ratio laws. And he and other owners in town are more interested in us being closed and having less uh, uh, competition. So uh, anyway, Dr. Cable, um, his restaurants still operate the way that it used to be. Uh, thankfully, things have changed. So now you can get your own drink at the bar and walk to your table. You could not do that before, which is crazy. But it, it is, uh, the food ratio law is a leftover garbage, basically, from garbage science that said if you ate, you would not get drunk. But there's very, there's no science that says if you drink four drinks and you eat a hamburger, you're going to be less drunk than if you don't eat the hamburgers. That's actually not true. And anybody that's ever had a DUI can tell you that because it doesn't change your blood alcohol content. Eating food doesn't keep you sober. It doesn't stop your sobriety what at all. What does it do? Anything? Uh, nothing. I mean, maybe changes your blood sugar content, but that's about it. Uh, they, they use the excuse of this is the only way to get rid of nightclubs and things like that that have violence and problems. But frankly, we should have nightclubs in town. We should have uh, stricter rules like for, against violence so they get shut down quickly if there's a problem at the club specifically. And we should charge the nightclubs a fortune for their license because they're not employing... I mean, my kitchen staff's labor here is a quarter of a million dollars a year and they don't have to spend that from the get-go if they're a nightclub. And so raise the cost of their license and then let neighborhoods vote on if they'll allow those kind of licenses to exist. And these are the things I'm trying to change in the General Assembly because the reality of it is we all have the same license. Have a nice day that had all that violence and shootings and never sold any food and they have the exact same uh, restaurant license as I do. And they have the exact same restaurant license as like, I don't know, any of the places that you think of as like upscale dining at Stella's or, and they also have the same license as just your neighborhood bar, like a bamboo or a sidewalk, but they hold a thousand people. And so they have a thousand opportunities to sell people product. It's almost always just alcohol. And a lot of those clubs just ring their uh, cover charge up as food sales. And there's no way to stop them from doing that. And there's no way for anybody to bust them from doing that. So the food ratio is never going to stop that place from existing. Um, Just as a question, have you ever eaten at the National, Scott? At the restaurant across the street or on the corner there? Or I'm talking the actual like, like sitting down watching sitting a concert? Sitting down at the watching concert, have you eaten at the National? Not once, no. Never. Okay, I just wanted to know. But they don't have to sell food. They I'm have just a, wondering, they did at one point. They, they got a unique license that, that doesn't require... They used requ to have to yes. serve food. And I want to know, at any point, have you eaten at the National? There was that restaurant next door that I 
at and once. that still exists. That that's, still exists, okay. and that's great. Jimmy Bud yes. um, is a part of that, along yes. with Lester Johnson. But I think that they, they had to change their license. They did because of the food ratios. Yes, and the state granted a new type of license for that. And what I've been trying to do in the background is change it so that uh, they don't necessarily have to create a new type of license for me to exist, but just make the ratios more reasonable. And I suggested they come up with a sliding scale based on capacity for how much food you have to sell. So like my fan restaurant, literally 30% capacity, we probably sell, I don't know, $10,000, $15,000 worth of food a, week, a month there. Maybe more, I don't know, off the top of my head. But that's a ton of food for a little tiny place like that. And so if they came up with something, and at a, at a minimum to hold your liquor license, you have to sell $4,000 a month on food. So they already have a requirement that you have to sell at least $4,000 in food a month um, or they're going to take your license. And when Gaston flooded Shaco Bottom, I was closed for several months. And the state almost took my liquor license away from me because we were not open for those several months and we did not sell any food. This is how uptight they are. Like I had to like really plead to you know get them to just look at my annual sales to show them we still did way more than the forty eight thousand dollars that would have been required if we had just had to barely sell the minimum. I just couldn't believe a natural disaster was something that they were going to try to take our license over. But I just think if you're going to have that minimum, then that's all you should have to sell, or you know make a sliding scale for your based on your capacity so that a place that holds a thousand people if they're going to get the same license as us maybe they need to sell twenty five thousand dollars a month in food but i don't want to push that myself because again i think nightclubs should exist i think bars should exist and i think restaurants should exist but and i think each of them should have a different license because they cost different amounts of money to operate Okay, I have a couple questions, but I think you should ask your question that you asked. So Scott and I went to dinner this past Friday or Thursday, maybe this Thursday at Southbound, and he proposed a question to the table because he's recently come here to celebrate, and I would like you to just answer it. No thought, no nothing. (laughs) You always answer things with thought, Matt, but like just the first thing that comes to your mind. Come to the bar. Yes. You order one of those $100 pours. Right. The bill comes. It's $100 plus tax. Yes. What kind of tip am I leaving you? Normal tip, 20%. You're not coming to this restaurant to drink cheap liquor. And you're also coming to this restaurant to be served by people who are considered experts in their field. I don't hire just random people. I hire people that have spent years learning about their products. And and they are, I mean, would you be saying that about, uh, like, if you get a hamburger at, um, I don't know, Bullets. Not even Bullets. What are they called? Bullets. Them? Cookout. <laughs> no, 90s I, again. Actually, wait. We need a place that, well, they're the same chain. It's the same owner. Uh, cookout and Bullets are the same people. Uh, I'm sorry. Anyway, you go to the cheapest place in America to get a hamburger. Sure. And then you go to uh, French Laundry and you get their foie gras burger with gold leaf and all of that stuff that costs $500. Are you going to ask that question about that hamburger because it's still just a hamburger. Probably not. There you go. I would not ask that question. So I propose back to him if you, let's just take the, I poured because where his, I'm going to take his thought and deepen it. (laughs) Well, listen. It's not difficult. I know. I'm going to make you a little deeper, Scott. So the thought is this. You take a glass. Right. Very talented. Know a lot about whiskey with an E, without an E, all bourbons, everything, right? You pour it in a glass, you hand it to me. Yes. That is pretty much our transaction. Yeah, it's no different than a bottle of wine. Or going to somewhere like the Vale. Yes. Because they poured it into a glass. And those are some expensive beers. Sure. I mean, but it's the same. Yes. So would you tip, I asked him, what do you tip on a Vale beer? I said 20%. The same that I tipped here. Yes. But my question was, is there a level of expectation? Do you see the person that just tips $1 per pour? No. You don't see that? No. I, I... there are some, uh, we have a lot of international customers. This restaurant in particular, we've won in the best bourbon bar sure. category a couple times now. And I mean, so. I just wish you'd get some more. Oh, well, I think I mean, we have. You just don't have I enough. There's space on the bar there. I know, there's a like an empty. There, yeah, there's easy. You could squish some more an in. An airplane bottle, maybe. But because of that, we're in a lot of magazines. And so a lot of tourists come here. And so countries that don't tip, those are the ones that tend to I they actually still do tip it's it's just not like 
we would expect in the United States. And I kind of expect that from somebody who comes from a culture that doesn't tip, and that's fine with me. But if somebody who grew up in the United States or is very familiar with the restaurant business doesn't do that, I would say I would never say anything to them. But I I do think that uh, you're choosing to buy something expensive, and that comes along with service and uh, a server that's serving you is required to pay taxes on a percentage of those sales whether you tip them or not. That's just the way that it works. And so potentially if you give them a really low tip, they may have to actually pay money beyond what you tip them to cover the taxes on the tip that they, you didn't give them. I did not know that. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, yeah, it's, it's, pre- uh, it's pretty crazy like how it all works in payroll-wise. Um, that being said, when people... Uh, when I'm serving people, sometimes I personally, because I'm the owner, even though I work as a bartender, I don't actually pay. I have never in 20, I don't even know how long I've been doing this, 20, no, 32 years I've been an owner now. In 32 years, I've never taken a paycheck. I live as a bartender every day. Um, all the money that I, these restaurants make goes into inventory because I have to do that. Now, if I ever sell my restaurant, it's worth millions of dollars because the inventory is worth millions of dollars. But I just don't take a paycheck, and that's why we survived COVID. That's why we uh, were a- are able to expand because all the money I choose to invest back into the business and, and, and instead of choosing to rely on it. And it's also why I bartend, not cook, because I could not pay myself the salary that I would make as a bartender. And so I would rather be a bartender uh, at my restaurants. I, I, when I built the first one, I was never like, oh, this is going to be a gold mine. I'm going to make a fortune. I never thought that way. Um, as a matter of fact, my pub downtown has never made any money. Uh, if you do all the pluses and minuses, we had Gaston. That one day cost me 140 grand. We had 9-11, which nobody went out that whole year. I think I lost like 38 grand that year. Um, we had a, a fire a couple of years later that was actually caused by Gaston because the electrical down there was so bad that several transformers exploded and diverted all the power for the whole grid into my restaurant and exploded my panel and like ignited our roof. It was bad. And then we've had all the violence and shootings down there and then the terrible police response, like they're still blockading our streets. They've been blockading my neighborhood down there on Friday and Saturday for 13 years every Friday and Saturday night. And we do more on a Sunday and Monday than we do on a Friday and Saturday. And that's not the way that a bar should ever be. Uh, in 2009, the pub did $870,000 in sales. And in 2010, because of the police blockades, we did 62. Uh, so how do you stay open, I guess, is the question. You build other restaurants. Yeah, that's the, that's the <laughs> only and, answer. And that's... all the money from the fan restaurant. that it, The fan restaurant did something the pub never did. It started making money, except I've never been able to keep it. It all went to support the pub. And about half of my tips that I made supported the pub as well because – I love my pub. My best friends work for me at my pub. I'm not going to lay my best friends off and they're not exactly the type to come work. You know, they have mohawks and a couple of face piercings and uh, tattoos on their face. They're not going to want to work in a place where people stare at them like they're an ogre for having a face tattoo. And so I just, I, I gave my staff a shift guarantee. I actually do this for all my front of the house people. I give them a shift guarantee. If it's a terrible day, I make sure they make a certain amount of money. And I did that to keep the staff consistent at my pub through all those bad years down there. The Joseph, the main bartender, he's my best friend. We were roommates when I was 19. I guaranteed that he would make a certain amount a week and it didn't matter how little he made, I paid him the difference out of my tips that I earned at my other restaurant because I needed someone like me to be the face of that bar all the time. And people love Joe. Like he's sweetest, coolest guy I know. And, and it's why the pub is still there. And now the pub is uh, getting back to, it's nowhere near in sales what it used to be. And until the police blockades stop down there, it won't be. And, and I completely blame the city of Richmond for damaging my business. I've actually debated on suing them for impeding business down there. Uh, I, I'm still thinking about it because I look at our worst year prior to uh, those blockades was the year of the flood. We were closed for several months and I did $660,000 in sales. The best year I've had since the police blockade started was 400,000. Like that's huge considering the average year was in the 800 to 900 range before all the blockades 
But that little area of Shaco has built up with more restaurants, right? I mean, actually, there's less. Back in the day, Shaco Bottom was probably 25 restaurants within a two to three block radius. There are so many empty restaurant spaces down there; it's crazy. But I'm talking about specifically that one little strip where your pub is. All those are old, old, already done restaurant buildings. The that's part of the problem. Is uh, the good thing about ABC is it allows someone like me who had nothing to start their own place. I just had to pay a modest license fee that first year. And I was able to, because I wasn't a felon, open a restaurant. And that's a great thing. That It allows David Shannon at La Poston to be his own owner. It allows Ed Viseo, who walked away from La Mer, to be his own owner. It allowed Johnny to be his own owner with all of his restaurants. It doesn't, we don't, we're not like New York, where you have to have a big money investor backing you. And the number of restaurants that get so much hype in this town that have those big money investors are the ones that fail a lot of times because the um, big money investor isn't getting their money back fast enough and they get fed up and they, they're like, well, screw this, let's close it and we can write it off. Whereas the chef owner who was their partner who, who really wasn't an owner because he was being told what to do by the money partners probably never would have closed this place because whatever he made, it was his and he was proud of it the money people behind a lot of these kind of quicker to get reputation restaurants in town uh, that they're being dictated to and by people who actually don't care about them. And you might as well just be working for somebody else at that point instead instead of taking less money than you should have gotten to begin with. And I don't want to say any names of those people, but I think we know those restaurants and it's sad. I've been encouraging uh, developers that I know to buy the old nightclub buildings and they have uh, a couple of them are gone now as nightclubs and it's sad because I worked at some of those nightclubs back in the day and I loved them but nobody's done kind of the right thing by those buildings in a long time and and so we need uh, like fresh blood and fresh interest in the bottom but it has to be nicer and the, the bottom isn't really that violent uh, it's just uh, media violence is what I would call it. The bottom is like a pit bull. You know, if some pit bull in Iowa bites somebody and it's in Richmond news. Um, but chihuahuas and chows and, I mean, there's Jack Russells are terrible. They bite far more frequently than pit bulls and they never make the news. Uh, it's, it's really weird. Actually, when I was building this, the old location of this Regency, there was a shooting inside of the Dave & Buster's in Shore Pump. Inside of it. And it didn't make the news, but Shaco Bottom did because there was a bar fight, like no shooting, no violence. And I was like, why is, why is that, you know, being on the news? I could be a, a guest on one of your podcasts and we can talk about that because that's my day job, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Channel 6, that's where, I, okay. that's where I work. Uh, that's who pays the bills. Well, it just got me so sad because, I mean, that's my neighborhood. I love Shaco Bottom. Like, sure. I mean, I, I started I love it too. everything down there for myself and, and I, I – I, own my building down there, it's actually almost paid off. And I could sell that building in a heartbeat. And there's so many developers that would love my building. And and I won't sell it because that would just benefit me. And I would actually probably hurt the bottom by leaving it. Uh, I, I feel, feel like as the oldest business owner down there, I feel like it's my responsibility to fight for the neighborhood and, and help make it what it should be because it should be amazing. I mean, I think you're I, getting there. There's some renovations of some yeah. condos nearby that have done really well. They're getting ready. There's getting ready to be not that this is your block, but there's getting ready to be somebody in the old Morton's. Yeah. I feel like you're going to have a couple new restaurants that are going to your cross street. Um, I know that nearby you two doors down. I think that's about to be something pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that you're seeing a little bit more of a renaissance. I feel like that would be a good word. Honestly, the bottom has done nothing but get nicer since I started working down there in the 80s. It's never gone down. It's always gotten nicer. The impression of the bottom that the media portrays sure. makes it look like it's gotten worse. How do you, What do you think of the train station? I think it's a gorgeous little spot. So I actually worked in a restaurant in that building. Really? Yeah, back in the day. It was oh. called, and here's the irony of this telling you that. It was called Scarlet's and then we. I, I was a promoter before I started my own bar, I, that's how I was able to kind of grow. I booked bands and did club nights. And I did a club night there called Heaven and Hell. And we did the two stories. And um, uh, it had a very famous shooting um, in the parking lot. I feel of, like it's you, Mac. No, no. It's you. It, this was a cop. 
that did oh, the shooting. Gosh, an, oh, off, no. an off-duty officer shot somebody after a wedding reception at that place. The, the, a fight started across the street. You know how there's that parking lot? That used to be a dirt alley, uh, dirt parking lot, and like it was free parking, hundreds of spaces. Now there's like 50. I don't know why they changed it. So it was so beneficial to the bottom to have all that parking. But Money to be made. Yes. So they... Uh, when they were leaving this wedding reception at, I think it was like 4.30 in the afternoon. It wasn't even like dark yet. Altercation happened. Off-duty police officer who was part of the wedding party shot somebody. And that shut the business down. Like the the city pulled the business license because of something that didn't even happen on the property. It was across the street because it was their crowd. And that's the way the city used to address clubs and bars and restaurants that had problems is – if there was more than one or two issues, they would be like, well, you're not playing fair to your neighbors and they would close it. And that's been the problem with the uh, city recently is they're not doing that. They're not controlling the businesses by threatening them with their license. Uh, if, if they had yanked Have a Nice Day Cafe's license after, I don't know, the 10th shooting and the th- second murder, a couple more people would still be alive. It's definitely the media's problem, though, Ruby. It always, I'm telling Ten you, shootings Scott, and two murders. It's definitely our it's problem. Y'all's problem. So, so they, <laughs> they, sure. they had it. Quit talking about it. I don't understand. It's really I, what's happening. I'm not saying the media is the, is the problem. <laughs> I was just messing with it's, you. It's the choice and stories that the media ah, chooses to run. Yes. So I'm going to swing this around because I have other questions. First, okay. can you explain to me, um, or not to me, but to people that may not know, and please don't use the all bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon thing. Because I but feel that's like true. I, I know, <laughs> but I, I feel like everybody says it, and then they don't like walk through that. Sure, it's like the master of none is master of one, but nobody ever goes to the rest of that quote. Right, um, whiskey with an e, without an e, and bourbon. So uh, actually, a couple countries do the with an e. Um, in Ireland, they actually use both. The whiskey with an EY and then no Y on some products. Uh, traditionally, no E is Ireland and Scotland. Uh, both Ireland and Scotland make their whiskeys from malted barley. Uh, usually the difference in flavor profile, traditionally Irish whiskeys were triple distilled. Scotch whiskeys were double distilled. Each time you distill, uh, run a distillation uh, run, it, it strips out kind of more of the flavor of the grain. And so some people think that makes it smoother, which... That's kind of Crown Royal's whole thing with their whiskeys. They distill it multiple times to make it quote-unquote smoother. Um, but I, bourbon uh, is not that way. Bourbon has to be at least 51% corn, and then you could use whatever other grains for the remainder of it. And rye whiskey is the same rule, 51% rye. Uh, to be bourbon, though, it has to be distilled in the United States. Uh, I think technically you could probably distill it in Puerto Rico because that's an American territory. Um, I'm not really sure... Because I don't think I've ever read that particular rule, but it has to be United States. It has to be a new barrel, um, and it has to be white oak. It, back in the day, I think it had to be new American oak, but I think they've changed that because it's getting harder and harder to source the wood for the barrels. Um, the uh, uh, rule for a Kentucky straight whiskey, this is where it gets confusing. People will say, oh, you have to have your bourbon made in Kentucky. That's actually not true, and it took a federal law to make that kind of not true you could make bourbon anywhere kentucky passed a state law trying to block their competitors from calling their products bourbon uh and uh the federal government stepped in and said hold on a second when bourbon was created you were in a state <laughs> you were virginia and washington made whiskey and even made a bourbon style whiskey so they are the ones that created the united states rule and then uh the regulations for the other things kind of fell in place Kentucky straight has to be aged for at least two years and distilled in Kentucky. And then a Kentucky bonded or bonded whiskey in general has to be at least four years of aging and a hundred proof at a release. And then the uh, Kentucky bonded, uh, I'm sorry, Kentucky straight bonded has to be at least four years. Same season on the distillation for both of the bondeds and, uh, and it has to be from Kentucky. So they still kind of, play with the words but the best bourbon in the united states for the last couple of years has actually been distilled in fredericksburg at bowman uh, john j bowman is one best bourbon i think virginia guys three, virginia i think two or three times now um and it's really good um 
So there, there you go. There you go. Deep, deep into it, but a nice little short paragraph. That was the what do they call them? Spark notes. Now, if you're the kids, not Cliff's notes. A cliff's what notes. Are, cliff. Do not age yourself. Cliff is Cliff is out. Spark is in. I had no idea. Yep. There you go, Sparky. Okay. So, if I'm not drinking the expensive stuff because I do not do two drinks two days. Sure. I like maybe three days. <laughs> Just go with three, that. Three drinks a day. Three drinks a day. Three days a week. Um, what am I drinking? And I know, like, I know all the stuff that's, like, super hyped up, but I really don't, I just don't give a Usually when I talk to people about products here, I, I don't talk about the hyped up ones because we can't get them. And usually my goal is to show people products that they can go to almost any ABC store and buy it. Um, and then I would ask them questions about the things that they like normally. Um, and so... Uh, are you talking about bourbon specifically? I, I, I say you're coming in. Are you? Co- what are you coming in for? Because you're the I, brown he, liquor drinker, Scott. Are you coming in for bourbon? Scott's or with coming always in. bourbon. He, always bourbon. Scott tends to just come in to stare at our butts when we're on the ladder. Like I've gotten a lot smaller recently. Uh, just a little bit. I'm still, still working on it. you got to keep a little bit back there for the twerking. All the secrets are being blown up on this podcast. Jeez, I've been doing this for three years, and now finally all the secrets are coming out. All of them coming out. I'm a butt stare. <laughs> so... Uh, Scott, yes. if you're coming here, oh, we had a spit take over here. Got to watch the equipment. Sorry. Jesus, <laughs> oh, burn God, this brandy restaurant down. Brown liquor, Brown bourbon. Liquor. <laughs> that's why I have to bartend. I would get fired at Capital One. <laughs> uh, if you're in here, I would ask you a couple questions about other things that you like besides whiskey, because it helps me. Uh, helps me understand your palate. And I actually do this kind of thing at, at uh, some museums around the country now, like twice a year. I'm in New York, and one of the times I'm at the MoMA, and I'm talking about palates and trying to teach people kind of the art of distillation and whiskey. And then I also teach them what they should be drinking as opposed to what they've been taught to drink. And that is a hard thing to uh, think about because we are taught to drink whatever we drink. And... and um, I try to not break people of habits, but like just show them things that they're going to really appreciate and they maybe have never tried it. So say I ask you sure. beer-wise, if you're at a brewery, what style of beer do you drink? Like a Belgian like wheat beer. Wheat beers? Okay. So citrusy and, and kind Lighter, of sweeter, yeah. but light. And then if you're at a vineyard, what kind of wine are you going to drink? Uh, dark reds. Dark reds. you like the earthy, drier ones? Or do you like like a bold, like fruity... Ford Zinfandel or something the like drier that. ones. Okay. Earthy. So uh, I know that you usually are in here for bourbon, but have you ever really delved into the scotch world? I have not. Why not? Because I like bourbon. So can I show you something real fast? Oh. Wait, I, wait, 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 wait. I'm just going <laughs> to... It depends pour. what you're going to show me, Matt, because we've <laughs> no, had a couple... Well, I feel like we've proven ourselves things might go so, a little so sideways you, here. You, you can't see behind the bar, but I've been pantsless this entire time. <laughs> I'm... <laughs> show me what you're going to show me man. all right so so here's the thing about it is like we are taught and i'm not saying that you don't can't like bourbon because it's amazing but i'm gonna let you taste some whiskey that you're gonna love okay here it is for you do i swirl it do i sniff it however however you want to do so this is from scotland it was aged for 18 years in an oloroso sherry cask I would say, sorry, bro, we didn't save you. Anything. No, I don't care. <laughs> Very smooth. Yes. Um, it's really good. I mean, I, I it's uh, it's not as like um, charcoal, obviously, as yes. it comes to a different process, but I would drink that again. It's, it's beautiful. So here's the thing about this particular whiskey. I like it is like freaking killing you with peat. Like that's my off-putting thing about scotch is all yeah. of a sudden I'm like, is something burning down? Except not all scotches have that peated quality. But it's what I'm in my mind. Yes. Like you were just talking about that's how I've been taught. So like, right. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't want but that. But I it's bet I could show fire. you hyper-peated whiskeys that you like also. Well, probably. Uh, sure. You just have to kind of be ready for it. You know, so and what was it that I told you that you synthesized to come up with that? Well, you told me about your appreciation of red wine and sherries are fortified red wines. Uh, you told me that you like sweeter beers. That whiskey is very sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and citrus notes, which are definitely in here. On the back end, this is all stone fruit up front and then kind of rich caramel in the center. But then the back flavor that's left in your mouth now, it's fruity and citrusy and light. And that's so going to stay with you. So one and a half ounce pour of this is how much? Uh, this is a $40 pour at the restaurant. It's a $220 bottle. But see, here's the thing. 
if I talk to you about the average single barrel 18-year bourbon, which I would say that this is the equivalent of, most people are paying in the, you know, thousand dollar a bottle range for that i think that there's just beautiful gems in the whiskey world from scotland that are so well priced compared to bourbons holy moly back this is not anything i would think i know that's what i'm saying and this is what i do when i'm up at the moma talking about this would stuff you think that i don't really drink scotch so i don't n- really know n- no. well, apparently you do now i do today yeah. i did so do i so what is this bottle again for those so this is the 18 year glendronach it's actually one of my favorite distilleries uh the best whiskey i've ever had from anybody and I mean, I've tried it's great. a ton of whiskeys, that really? I ha- I, but I have three <laughs> top whiskeys in my life. The 33-year edition of this, which it used to be pretty reasonably priced. It was a $350 bottle, but unfortunately, they only made it once, so now they're crazy expensive. But that was like the best whiskey I've ever had. The second best whiskey I've ever had, I was with Roby at a whiskey tasting, and I brought a 1958 Rebel Yell to that tasting and she got to try it and it was made by Pappy Van Winkle himself and it was just flawless bourbon. I mean, it was like somebody had like poured creme brulee into a glass and then kind of smacked a little, here's some bourbon on your cheek while you're sipping it. And uh, the third uh, best whiskey that I've ever had was the Sherry Cask Suntory Yamazaki 18 year, which was actually the one that won Whiskey the World like 10 years ago. And it used to be $180 a bottle, but now it's like, five grand because of that and it's impossible to get but this is as close to the best whiskey i've ever had as you can get for a kind of modest price i mean two hundred dollars for a bottle of whiskey sounds really expensive until you start talking about other things so we were talking about the veil earlier if you bought a four pack of beer from the veil how much are they i don't even actually know Let's just bucks? say that. I mean, let's say they're 30. 30. Okay, so. Probably a little less, but let's go with 30 for round 30 six. sounds right, about right from what I've heard. And then uh, if you're buying a special bottle of wine, how much do you buy your bottle of wine for? <laughs> I'm the wrong person to ask. Okay, I can do it. Yes. If I'm buying a special bottle, I mean, I'm going to spend it between 70. Am I taking it to somebody I love? Yeah, then 70 or 100 bucks is where I'm going to I'm gonna spend. So uh, let's just go with 70. Because hundred is pretty expensive for wine, and that doesn't happen too often. But seventy probably happens more often than you would like to admit. I love a uh, good bottle of wine. I mean, I'm not and opposed I, to paying. And I love a good bottle of wine too. I actually loved wine before I loved whiskey. So, uh, if you do that seventy dollar bottle of wine, that's four glasses. I know the way you poured is two glasses, but of course it is. It's actually like, one glass. Yeah. I don't understand what you're talking about. Well, they about. they make silly straws that I work. Know. Two for her and one yeah. for straight her husband. to straight yes. in the bottle. You know how I am. But the thing about they that like is the bendy ones. Yes. So. Uh, 70, that's 10, 18, yeah, around $18 a glass is what you're spending at your house to do that. And so if you translate that to whiskey, um, 180 plus 250 plus $310 a, a bottle is the equivalent in whiskey to the $70 bottle of wine. So remember I made that rule for myself to no more than two drinks a day. I really was a wine fanatic, but it didn't work very well with my two drinks a day thing it's because I really love reds. That's my, my favorite, especially old world reds. Like I love an Amarone and a Barolo. Like I just, uh, I actually have a ton of half bottles of all those here at this restaurant, mostly so if I want to have a nice wine with dinner. Two glasses, yes. there you are. So the... um. I started doing the math and I, of of how much I was spending by the glass for myself, not going to restaurants, just for the house. And also the problem with that was I always had to have somebody to share it with or else the wine was going to go bad. And then I started thinking, well, you know, if I went into whiskey with this mindset, I could have a drink and put the bottle in a cabinet for a year and it's the same product. It doesn't change. It never goes bad. And it started me down the path of appreciating whiskey because of the way I drink. Uh, also, I started drinking whiskey neat because I, since I could only have two drinks, I wanted to take my time with it. And at first, I wasn't used to drinking something that was so high-proof neat. And so I would really slow it down. I also uh, figured out through this time, and I'm going to pour something else for you guys to try, why you should never put ice in your whiskey. And I'm going to oh, show you that. You Why you should never put ice it, in your whiskey. It, it literally... Rocks. Can we use bad he's language? He's against rocks. You, sure. It f***s whiskey up. Bad. He's totally against it. He's all, you've always been against but it. But I'll show you why. I'll show you that you should be against it, too. You have shown me. I'm excited to see it again. I think it should... We should come here every week, I think. Oh, it should be a nah. weekly podcast now. Nah. 
Okay, I put my pants back on because I had to walk Thank over God. there. So we're going to use the Jack Daniels Bonded. It's a new product from them, which is actually really great. Uh, I, uh, I think that uh, this is actually one of the best new whiskeys to come out from an American distillery this year. Jack Daniels is the best new whiskey come out from an American distillery. This is, this is the Jack Daniels Bonded. That is literally going to freak the thing you say. And, and this is not an expensive bottle. I'm just saying a, the best like that we can all get a hold of. No, I love um, this. It's his favorite whiskey, Jack Daniels. Is. Well, you should it's buy him a bottle of the Bonded as a gift, like a birthday or Christmas, and show him the way. Uh, so we're going to let this change for like a minute. And then while, I, while we do that, I'm going to tell you why the whiskey uh, gets ruined by ice. So when you think about making bourbon, it's going into the barrel, right? And the barrel's made out of oak wood. The oak has oils in it. And so when they char that barrel, it not only caramelizes the wood sugar of the staves, but it also kind of creates... <laughs> We're closed. I don't know how to turn it off. <laughs> I can start this part over if you want. Hold on one second. We'll edit it right out. <laughs> Actually, I don't want to edit this out. You still have this. Hold on. Somebody leave a message. Sorry, sorry. We don't do reservations. Hopefully, Sarah's listening to the podcast. Sarah, can, uh, if you're listening to the podcast, get a, I can get directly in touch with Mac to get your reservation. How He's about nodding that? yes. You have he, the whole place he, to yourself. You get the whole thing. He's Free also going to tell you why ice is not good in bourbon. Here we go. All right, so we pause that for a second. So this, it's been enough time to for this to change because it's been about a minute. And I'll finish the explanation after this. So, Ruby, I want you to take a little sip of that. Gonna give it to you as soon as I take a sip. Of it. Well, it's been, but you, it's been a very short period of time. Yeah, it doesn't look very good. Well, it's not even about the look. Tell my dad likes his. Seriously. I want you to take a little tiny sip of that. It's just one minute later on the ice. They don't resemble each other at all, do they? They're not even the same thing. Yeah, it's. Not even close to the same. No. no. So, so here's not the thing. Even close. It's only been a minute. Um, this is yeah, I know it is. So here, I'm going to add some water to this glass. Can I see your water glass? So we're going to put a massive amount of water inside of that non-iced one. I'm going to put one drop. Well, I got a drop and a half there. That little tiny drop. Just a little tiny drop of water. Is actually going to cut the burn that came in in the first sip of that whiskey. Just that little tiny drop. It also is it true? You're, you're gonna you your mind is, is gonna blown. What's happening blown. here? Well, this is you're I drinking mean, is for free, so there's salesman. no sales <laughs> being involved because I'm giving you free whiskey. <laughs> yes, it, it, you're right. It's changed immensely. It, it also got a little sweeter, so we need a little bit more because you guys are drinking too fast. I did not. I did not. I told so are you advocating putting a drop of water bumps. in your bourbon? You can you add water. Actually, so it's not ice. Right. Because it's too much water? Is Actually, no. It's The dilution is no problem. This is what I'm kind of showing you. It's the temperature. So I added more whiskey, but I'm going to add a lot of water. That's probably 35 40% of the volume that was in there, and I just added a nice water. If you taste that, there's no burn. Very sweet now. It's going to taste almost like a cookie. Yep. Kind of crazy, right? It's like an oatmeal cookie. Yeah. So that's all you're going to taste now is oatmeal cookie. I want you to know that. I think it's I more like s- caramel. It's like, like a snickerdoodle. Cookie. Yeah, that's what I think it tastes like as a snickerdoodle. It was back to my childhood. <laughs> yes. Snickerdoodles do. When, when Nana, when Nana was tired of your. <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> all right. So is this every bourbon or is this Jack Daniels this bonded? Is, this, this is, is going to be every not bourbon just every bourbon. This is every spirit. So take take a tiny sip of the one on ice again, and you'll oh see Lord. that it's actually. It's work day today. I gotta do a whole thing. <laughs> it's not sweet at all anymore, and it's actually starting to turn bitter. So did you hear that, Dad? Stop putting your Jack Daniels on ice. I'm just making sure you know that it's been said here by one of the best whiskey bourbon guys in well, probably the United States. So I have one additional question for okay. you. If I set up four whiskeys. In, made in different places, no scotch. In a blind tasting, do you think that you could tell me 
I don't tell me who they are, but do you think you could tell me where they're from? Oh, absolutely, where they're from. Brands are a little harder. I, I mean, some I actually can recognize pretty easily, but uh, as far as brands go, I can definitely tell you the origin, country, and things like that, though. That's pretty easy. Did you bring some? Is I there did a not. bag somewhere? Oh, no. No. <laughs> okay. Wait, you heard You're off it the here. hook, man. You heard it here. Blind, blind tasting for Mac. He does them for $100 every night. <laughs> oh, so you God. guys can come in. You're listening to Eat of Virginia with Roby Martin, Scott Wise, and Mac McCormick. And Carolyn, the answering machine lady. And Sarah, who needs a reservation. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of Eat It Virginia. Eat it, Virginia? <laughs> this episode of Eat It, Virginia? <laughs> no! Oh, God, no.